I'm Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast, Podcast. where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 152. And this week, it's Daisy's turn to share something. Daisy, what do you have? Well, Terry, I have something new and something old. Nothing it's a wedding. Nothing blue. Yeah, don't get so excited. Don't get too excited. <laughs> okay, so there's something new, sort of, is a new podcast. It's kind of a new podcast, but it's based on, or well, I don't know which came first, chicken and the egg, I'm sure. But it's a newsletter that I've used a lot. The next big idea, next big idea. They've got a website. They send out a newsletter. I've used the newsletters often and the things they share, the either the book bites articles that they write and different things like that. I've shared on this podcast quite often. And this was indeed an email, a newsletter that came out that was telling me about a podcast episode and it was interviewing Gretchen Rubin about her new book. Now, I have got the book. I haven't started listening to it yet. It arrived. I did pre-order it and it arrived in my Audible library last week. But this interview popped up and I thought, well, I'll I'll just give it a listen. And actually, they covered some really interesting things. So I thought, well, I'm going to come back in. And again, before I've actually read the book, I'm going to share a few more things. And then maybe once I've read the book, if there's anything extra to add, I will come back with a kind of final roundup. So just um, quickly, the podcast is called The Next Big Idea Podcast. And they also have a daily one, which I think I will be coming back to you with at some point because it's a little bit like the quick brain type podcast. They're short episodes with sort of some handy tips and tricks and strategies and things. I haven't listened to any yet, but there's obviously a lot to choose from. And so I think I will be dipping my toe in that one. So maybe next time I'll be sharing that. But a quick bit of blurb about this podcast. The Next Big Idea is a weekly series of in-depth interviews with the world's leading thinkers. Join our host, Rufus Griscom, along with our curators, and this bit I found interesting, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink. They're all curators, so they're all associated with it. I thought that's interesting. For conversations that might just change the way you see the world. And these come out every Thursday. And this episode is the latest episode. Uh, It's called Senses, Gretchen Rubin's Guide to Getting Out of Your Head and Into the World. And of course, she is talking about her new book, The Five Senses. And I quite like this phrase that she uses, talking about how she was exploring the senses. This was the whole idea of the book in a way to get out of her head and into the world a bit more. She talks about her relentlessness with things like going over tasks in her head and getting really lost in that. And she was finding that she was missing out on things going around her. So um, you know, she could be missing a wonderful view or she'd she'd suddenly miss great chunks of the audio book she was listening to. And I find that sometimes, you know, when you, something starts going around in your head and you're thinking about it. We've, we've talked about this before, about not being able to do certain things, um, certain things at once. Some things you can multitask, other things not so much. 
So she thought that going through the senses one by one would be a good way to try and break that cycle a bit. So they go on to talk about some of them. And we we have touched on these in an episode a few weeks ago. Um, But like I say, they talked about some other things that I thought you might find interesting. So they started with sight. And this is a bit like, you know, we've we've spoken about before when they introduced the episode saying they're going to give you the five steps to this or the seven steps to that. And they spend three quarters of the episode on the first one. Well, they kind of did that with this. And there was a lot of focus on the first one, sight, but some interesting stuff. So they were saying that objects actually aren't really a certain color. It's that the light bounces off at a frequency. We we read our brain interprets as certain colors. And they were saying that from an evolutionary perspective, this could have been to identify different foods and things like that. And Gretchen Rubin brought up a neuroscience term called controlled hallucination that actually sort of refers to how we see color. And she talked about this importance of our sensory world being unique to the individual. And um, all the components that you need to experience color, you know, you need light. It needs to be light to see it. You need your eyes and your brain to all make sense of colors. And it sort of made me think, you know, is the color there or is it not there? Made me think of that, you know, when a tree falls in the woods, does does it make a sound? Thought thought, oh, you could you could go down a rabbit hole there. But she went on to talk about the pull of doing something daily and how people can how a lot of people really like doing things every day. And she talked about going to the Met every day. And this was part of exploring sight. And she was saying, when you do something every day, you feel yourself, you do really get drawn into it. And when she sort of thought about it, she th- it felt like quite a, a daunting challenge to go and do something every day and quite a commitment. But she said the more she did it, the more she felt the pull, the, the need almost to be going every day. But she said the interesting thing is that, yeah, the more she went, the more she wanted to go. And that the more you go, the more depth you see in something or the more you experience of something when when you do it every day. She says it's kind of like the opposite of meditation, of unleashing her mind rather than trying to discipline it. And as she was saying, the, the more she was going, the more she would notice when she was there. It becomes a much more deep and rich experience. And she says she got some tips from an artist called Sarah Z about art appreciation and how to look at art differently. And this, I thought, was, was quite interesting. And this is, this is all about you know, tapping into sight. And the whole point of her book is exploring your underused senses. So she's really trying to work every sense from every angle and get the most out of it. And she got some tips about how to look at art. And this artist, Sarah Z said, so, okay, so when you're looking at a painting, look at the shifts in scale. Where do things enter and exit a painting? What about the empty spaces? What's left empty? Look at it both close up and far away. 
look at it sort of squinting. How does it appear when you squint at it? And how does color, how does one block of color impact another? And Gretchen Rubin says, she says she really likes this approach. She likes having a set of tools and a system to approach something like this. So looking at the art. So she would go with these tools. And she said one of the things she she did, like a sort of fun thing, was to get the postcard of a painting and look at that. And she said you could look at it different ways. You know, you can turn it upside down and look at it different ways. And, and it's a small scale. And then she would go and look at the real thing and stand in front of it. And then she would she would set like different challenges for her daily visits so she said um swans she, said she would look for swans in the different art exhibits she said there are lots of swans but not many frogs so sort of fun exercises so there's this there's this thing that she found with with the more you do something the more enriching and interesting and in depth you can get but they were talking about what we consider to be worthy of our focus and she was talking a lot about the appreciation of more mundane things apparently she waxes lyrical in the book about appreciating the beauty of a traffic cone the light falling on it and things like that and and really developing these different sensory muscles so sort of flexing this focus muscle and she says that what's familiar is is so easy to ignore. She said, we, we really love the familiar, but we take it for granted and don't necessarily pay that much attention to it in the moment. But she said, what do we, we really like doing? She said, it, it's quite fun to go around and take pictures. I think she was going around and taking pictures of the different rooms in her apartment. She said, you know, we really like to look back on pictures of things like that, back on pictures of places we used to live or all these things that used to be so familiar to us. We love that, but we don't necessarily pay attention to it in the moment. And the, the host actually talked a little bit about this. And he said that he really regrets not taking more photos. He said he you know, saw it in the moment as robbing the present for the future, he called it. But now, you know, he wished he'd taken a lot more pictures of his example was the places that he lived. She had a quite an interesting tip for which a lot of us do. I don't actually use my mobile phone much at all. I use it as a phone and sending texts and listening to audiobooks, but I'm not one of these people who sits looking at my phone very much. I think partly because it's a small screen and I can't see it very well, that probably has something to do with it. But she did have a tip for those who feel like they're a bit too connected to their phone, use it a bit too much. She said, switch it to grayscale. Apparently you can change your phone's settings so that it's basically just black and white. She said, you know, color is really compelling and black and white much less so and so a lot easier to put down. And it, it made me think a little bit about the addictiveness of that coloring in app that I told you about. And I've kind of 
I've gotten out of the habit of doing that too much. I mostly, what I tend to do is let my iPad run down. So actually, if I wanted to play on the app, I'd have to charge it first. And by the time I've gone through that process, I often don't do it. But every now and then I'll pick it up and I will do it. And before I know it, you know, I've spent an hour and a half doing it. And the main reason why I love that, yeah, is the, is the colours. It's the way... They sit together, the richness of the colours they've used, the different tones they've used. Well, if I was filling that in in black and white, it wouldn't be appealing at all. She also said that she noticed once she had done this to her phone, that the world looks that much brighter. The world around her looks that much brighter when the screen is in grayscale. So she said, you know, how think of ways that you can use something like your phone, because you know, she said people people say, well, don't have your phone on all the time. Don't take it with you all the time. She said, well, that's just not practical. You know, we we need these things these days. But you can change your engagement with it to optimize the usage, get the good practical side of it out, but not to the detraction of the world around you. So I thought that was quite interesting. And so, like I say, they, they spent quite a lot of time focusing on sight and in particular colour. And she was saying, you know, colour is a really fun, easy, cheap way of expressing yourself. It's an easy and fun way to be creative. One of the things I was thinking about as you were describing that, and I was trying to remember what you would call them. And I, I think they're called like photo mosaic or photographic mosaic when you see a photograph of something or an image of something, but it's actually made up of, I don't know, hundred or thousand little tiles of actual photos that fill in that color. So if you're looking- Yeah, they're so clever. Yeah, if you're looking at the Mona Lisa Mm. and and you you know the colors or this and that, but then when you really look at it, there are actually other photos in there To me, that's a great example of something that I could spend so much time looking at the detail of how did they get those weird images that don't even fit together (laughs) to make this larger image. So somehow as you were talking about it, that's what I kept picturing, the ability to create something using color in a different way or color coming from an already existing photo or, or painting or whatever. So kind of... I don't know, pulling out the right pixels to color a right way at a time. And to me, that is, it just adds such depth to that actual image. Like that there are all these other images in there. Yeah. I thought it's so true as well. This, the pictures we love looking at so much are often the everyday, the things that we just take for granted in the moment. But yeah, looking back at, you know, how much would you love to see a picture collage of all the bedrooms you've ever had? You know, you, you kind of find that fascinating <laughs> to look back on now, but you don't necessarily in the moment um, appreciate it and properly look at it. And I, I really like the, the kind of list of things she had with this art appreciation, just practicing all these different ways of looking at something really sort of wringing out sort of every drop, if you like. And this 
doing it daily, it did make me think of, I've got out of the habit of going swimming every day, but I can remember that same feeling that I had. It feels like if you'd have said to me, and actually almost now, except I've experienced both, so I know how easy it is to have the experience of going daily and the pull of that. But if you'd have told me three years ago, or you'll be swimming every morning, I'd have said, you know, no, that's crazy. I won't be doing that. But once you start doing something every day and you you do have these sort of, you add these layers of appreciation and these this richness and the appreciation of the change and the the different things you get in the repetition. You think, oh, you're doing the same thing every day. It's going to be boring. But no, you find these extra layers every time is a little bit different. I thought that was just, I find that fascinating, the sort of the, the interest and the richness in the everyday and the quote unquote boring. And then they went on to talk about hearing. This was the next biggest one that they focused on really, but they talked about the, the sensitivity, how this is very different for different people, the sensitivity to sound and sound frequencies. They're so individual. It made me think of, it seems to be a bit of a thing of late. And I had to Google the acronym. I couldn't remember what it was, but ASMR seems to be quite a big thing. I keep seeing different videos of these different, it's sort of, well, I think you quite often are just listening to it. It's these different sounds that people find soothing and relaxing, don't they, of of whatever, running your finger across a comb or the, or these different kind of sounds that people like. I think it even goes to a bit of a fetishistic level with some people. But they were talking about the joy of almost silent sounds. Like she mentioned, loving the noise of hair being snipped, hair falling to the, the ground, she calls it, but that sort of snip and the, the gentle falling of the hair and how low background noises of people talking could be comforting or the sounds of nature, all sorts of things. And they were talking about some places have good acoustics. He was saying how hearing is his probably his most, I think it came up as his most underdeveloped sense when he took her quiz but he was started waxing lyrical about Grand Central Station. He said the acoustics there must be great, but he said he really loves the sounds there. He says, is it the acoustics? Is it the way it's built and the way sound travels around the building? Or maybe it's got something to do with the association, the excitement of travel, of, of going somewhere. And as I was saying at the start of this section, that different people are more or less sensitive to sound. It made me think of, I don't know if you remember when, do you remember when I was being driven nuts by this, it almost wasn't a sound, it was such a low level sound, but it was it was just a vibration that was in the room that I live in for everything. It's like my bedroom, my study, my living room. And as soon as you came in there's not actually a door but an archway into this room I could feel the vibration all around but it wasn't a noise that you could pinpoint and it it turned out to be the the filter on the fish tank upstairs going wrong or something but it was this low level vibration that I had people in here I don't know what you're talking about I can't hear it and it was I thought I was going to go out of my mind so <laughs> 
So, you know, different people have different sensitivities to the different senses. They had quite a fun conversation about music. She was saying that she never thought she liked music that much. And after taste, hearing is her most neglected sense. She felt like that she didn't properly appreciate music or was somehow doing it wrong. She felt that she kind of didn't get it like other people did. But a producer, a music producer friend suggested to her that, you know, she does like music. She just likes it in her own way. And she says that she likes songs rather than artists or genres. And part of this process for the book is that she built what she called an audio apothecary for different moods and needs. And she was saying that when you start focusing on something, you notice it more. So as she was looking for these different songs to put in her audio apothecary, she started to notice music in her surroundings a bit more. But they were they were both chatting about how music can really change your mood so quickly. It's one of those things that can really impact, just like the, the weather can impact your mood so dramatically for a lot of people. Music really can and so they were talking about how you know you can build these different playlists to adjust your mood and apparently her I haven't checked them out yet but apparently her audio apothecary is on Spotify so you can go and check them out but they were saying how it's hugely important music plays a hugely important role in so many things in religion in work socializing And nobody really knows exactly scientifically why it's so powerful, Um, but it can help you focus. You know, they often play it in operating rooms, uh, change your mood, boost your energy and performance. And it's all been scientifically verified, but they don't really know the nitty gritty of, of how it works. But she says just because research shows how it might impact you, it's not the same for everyone. She went for an MRI scan and apparently, you know, it's very typical for them to play music while you're in there. And so they asked her if she wanted them to play music. And she was, oh, no, 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 I want silence. And they were really shocked and tried to persuade her. But she really, she really didn't want it. So again, it's coming back to this. Our sensory landscape is so individual. Okay, this is a bit of a tangent here, but I find this fascinating. Years and years and years ago, I recognized this. And Daisy, this is a a reference to something in the US that I don't think you have there. Um, But it's a store, it's a chain of stores called Target. And if you've ever heard anybody in the US talk about Target, it's one of those stores that you go in intending to buy a $9 item and you come out and you've spent $112. (laughs) It's It's a bit like Ikea. Yeah. But for some reason, you just buy more there because they have so many things. And I don't know. I realized I think there are certain things about the store that make me want to buy things here. One was that it's very brightly lit. It's not dim. Like There's this one chain of clothing stores I used to go to, and it was like you were shopping in someone's den. It was dark (laughs) and cozy, but you couldn't really see things. So- one of the things I realized about Target is they didn't have music playing. Ah. And most other stores have music mm. playing. No music. It's silent in Target. And I thought, well, this is strange. How come they don't play music? And I just kind of thought about this over the years and would notice it and notice in other stores, 
like again, that same clothing store plays really loud music. They're going for a much younger audience than me. But I did a little bit of research and found out Target purposely did not put music in their stores for a long time because they didn't want to distract shoppers. Oh, interesting. They wanted you to have all of your senses to pay attention to the mm. objects and to make your decisions and whatnot. But over the years, they did start to experiment and they, you know, maybe put it in, I don't know, like 800 stores for a while and then had to choose what kind of songs will we have. And of course, chose things that were kind of upbeat, put you in kind of a peppy, active, happy mood. And then when I first researched this, I saw a lot of questions. People like, how come Target's playing music now? Or why doesn't my Target play music? But I just think that's so fascinating that for some retailers, the music is part of the experience and they want to shape your experience that way. Mm. And that for a while, at least, they were intentionally influencing your experience by not having music playing. That's something I'm absolutely going to be focused on. Every retail outlet I go into now. <laughs> Are they playing music? And what music? Because it is something, yeah, it's something that you don't really pay attention to unless it's kind of annoying. It's like around about Christmas time, you get, oh my God, you know, if yeah. I hear that Christmas track one more time, I'm going to go mad because all the shops are playing Christmas tunes. But when it when they first start playing the Christmas mm -hmm. tunes, it like gets you into the Christmas yeah. mood and the Christmas spirit. And you're like, you're kind of, you know, singing along and it's fun. And after a few weeks, it's like, oh, no, I've had it now. <laughs> I do have a memory though of one year I had just come out of a relationship and I was just emotionally devastated. And this person's favorite artist was Billy Joel. And I walked into, I don't remember the store. I, I think it was like a Lowe's or Home Depot or something. And a certain Billy Joel song came on. I had to walk out of the store. Like I couldn't <laughs> tolerate hearing that song. So unfortunately, their music selection that day lost them a customer because I, you know, emotionally, I just couldn't hear that song. But it is fascinating. Like you said, it sets a certain tone and, you know, the monotony of it. Gosh, I've heard this now. Or in January, if they're still playing the Christmas music, I'm annoyed. Or So it is fascinating how that can influence our experience of, of something, and of, in this case, of shopping. Yeah, and think about in restaurants. You know, you can go to a restaurant, especially if it's usually catering towards a, a younger audience, probably, because it always makes me feel old when I complain about it. But you go in and, and you're sort of blasted by sound. You know, the music's quite loud and it has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? So if the, if the music's loud, then everybody has to talk loudly to talk over the music. And, you know, I, don't, I find that too much. It's fine if, you're, if the context is right. So if you're at a disco, <laughs> really showing my age, I doubt anyone calls discos discos anymore. 
but you know what I mean when you you want that music thumping and you're not so much focused on talking to each other and if you are you know part of the context is that you have to lean into each other there's there's that you know the social connection and you know back in my day going to the disco it was getting close to the boys and maybe having a dance with it you know all that kind of thing it's all contextually it, it works when the music is thumping and you're wanting to dance and like I say you have to get close to people to hear each other talk I don't want it in a restaurant <laughs> So that's, I find that off-putting, but I'm sure mm. some people would enjoy that as part of the restaurant experience. Maybe it feels, you know, lively and hip and young and, and all the rest of it. I don't know, but it, I absolutely agree with her with all these sensory experiences that it's so individual. Absolutely. And as you said, people have different sensitivities. I have more sensitivity to sound than I do to smell. My partner smells everything, like has a bionic nose, I swear. And I think I have a bionic, I have bionic ears because things that I hear and things that distract me or annoy me based on sound, she doesn't even notice. So I definitely think we have those that we rely on more, that we have greater sensitivity to. And that bring us different responses, you know, mm. um, sounds like for her, the visual is really significant. And I think you said she thought auditory was kind of neglected in her list, did you say? Yeah, I think hers was hearing and smell were her underdeveloped, maybe taste, hearing after taste. So they did, they did race through the others, but there were a couple of quite interesting things. Smells, a couple of terms they had that I thought were, were quite funny. This was the host's least appreciated sense. His, I think, was hearing and smell. And I think hers was hearing and taste. But something called, apparently it's called diplomatic odor, they called it, which I thought was, was quite an amusing term. But these apparently are the smells we bring into the world for I mean, for ourselves, but for others. So it's it's the odors that we impose on other people. So, you know, our shampoos and deodorants and all the rest of it, which, you know, what I'm like with my sensitivity of smell. It's that, well, I quite like this term. So I will now be thinking in my head, that was a very undiplomatic odor <laughs> that you just assailed me with you know that person that you walk past their shampoo and their perfume and everything is so strong that you can smell it for the next hundred meters you're walking where they've walked you know I I don't understand people like that but um, I know most people like to smell lovely and and leave their diplomatic odor behind them so I know I'm in the minority here but then they, they talked about like the host had, he really likes the smell of opening a fresh can of tennis balls. So, you know, quite niche. But um, he had a can of new can of tennis balls and um, they reveled in the different senses where there was that pop of opening it. And, <laughs> you know, so I thought that was funny, but it made me think of, yeah, there is quite, there's nothing quite like busting through the that paper seal on a, a new jar of instant coffee and the smell that comes up from it. And I don't even like instant coffee that much, but it is that, just those sensory things. Like I say, the, the smashing through that paper and then the, that first odor that comes up. 
And there's a woman on Facebook, and I can't for the life of me remember her name, but she does like product testing on Tuesdays. I think she's she's from the South in the US somewhere. So I love her accent too. But she always sniffs everything, everything she tests. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> she always really focuses on. So I'm guessing her sense of smell is quite up there on her senses that she relies on because she always smells everything. And another interesting term that they mentioned was retronasal olfaction, which apparently is when you smell through the inside of your mouth. And they were talking about flavor really being a combination of taste and smell. And it made me think straight away of when you lose one, you tend to lose the other. And they did actually go on to cite you know, during COVID, often what was noticed was the loss of taste before the loss of smell. I used to work with somebody who didn't have their sense of smell. So they had virtually no sense of taste. So the way they ate was very different. They ate by look and texture, you know, feel of the food because they couldn't taste anything. I always have to relate my dogs to this, but it made me think of Bets, you know, how she lost weight, she lost some appetite. And I think that was because she she had such a runny nose all the time. She didn't have her sense of smell, so she lost her, her sense of taste. And it's it's important, isn't it? But we quite often forget how closely linked these things are. It also makes me wonder, as you described that, what would I eat if I didn't have a sense of taste? Yeah. Because if it were texture, so for me, for example, I really dislike the texture of eating steak. Mm. I know that I'm someone who does eat animal protein. I think it's healthy for me. But definitely, if I were eating based on texture, I would never eat a steak again. So like, which foods would I eat? Unfortunately, I think ice cream would still always feel good to me, (laughs) even if I didn't taste it. Yeah. And they they didn't talk too much about taste as it was it was so wrapped up there. But they did just sort of touch on, you know, how the spice trade over the decades just, you know, went nuts. We as a species, we just love and revel in different tastes and the the value of uh, they mentioned, you know, however many hundreds of years ago, if they'd have seen how liberal we are with salt and pepper, you know, these were these were such luxuries, especially pepper. Um, but all the different spices, we, we love the variety. Um, yeah, touch, they, touch is kind of obvious, really. They didn't, like I say, it was those, when you talk about the five different things and it speeds up towards the end and they don't really touch, excuse the pun, on it much. But they just talked about the importance of it Um, You know, babies rely on touch to thrive and grow. And we all do from connection, appropriate touch, obviously, but the importance of that, not only for something that's enjoyable, um, but Gretchen Rubin talked about something like massage, for example, the sort of the healing part of it too. Um, But the importance, she used an example, the importance of touch for connection and de-escalating something like a difficult conversation. She said if she's having something that's verging on an argument with her husband, just the act of, you know, 
sitting down, maybe holding hands, having that difficult conversation or putting a, a hand on someone's knee or on someone's arm or whatever. It just it just drops the tension down a bit and makes having a difficult conversation a bit easier because you've got that literal physical connection going. So one of the things I'm hearing in that is it's about the act of being in physical contact with someone and we know that that affects oxytocin in our body and things like that. I'm also thinking about touch as far as just our sensation of touching something. When I was a therapist, I often would use this as a technique to help people ground themselves during emotionally Mm. charged discussions and things to help keep them grounded, help keep them from dissociating. Like I had a very soft kind of fuzzy couch. And when someone was starting to kind of get flooded emotionally, I would ask them to put their hands on, you know, lay their hand flat onto the couch and feel that. And it could help kind of bring them into the moment. And then it also made me think about, I used to get teased about this, but I shop with touch. When I go into a clothing store, I don't just look at things. I touch everything. Oh, me too. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, if you feel that fabric and it feels nasty, yeah. no way buying that. But it's, it's, for me, it's not only if I like something and then I feel it, I'm touching everything as I'm shopping. I'm walking, you know, if it's hanging on a, um, a rack, I'm touching all of them. I'm, I'm running my mm-hmm. hands along it. It's something about what that brings to me, but I, I touch when I'm shopping. I don't do it as much with, obviously, with food. Probably kind of rude for me to touch everyone's food, <laughs> but... I do pick up a lot of food because I value reading the labels and that's hard to do while it's on the shelf. But shopping for clothes and shoes, I touch everything while I'm shopping. Um, Like if I walked into a store that said, do not touch, I'd have to walk out because there's no way I could shop. And this got me into a little bit of trouble the first time I went into an antique store because I touched (laughs) everything and I did knock something off a shelf that did break. So, Yeah, I'm curious what she has to say about touch in her book, but I know for me that that is so connected in my shopping experience. Yeah, I I thought it was an interesting reminder about de-escalating tension. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of the flip side of that. You see, the further you get away from that, think of how people argue on social media. Well, they're so far removed from touching the person. They're arguing with, you know, you you often hear it said, and I think it's true for most people. Would you have the conversation you're furiously typing on your keyboard if the person was right in front of you? Mm -hmm. Take that a step further. You know, if you were sitting next to them and touching them, would you be able to have that kind of agitated conversation? So, yes, it was just so a bit more of a tease of I'm actually going to um, start reading or listening to this book next week, probably, but some more interesting points. So I'm sure the book itself is going to yield even more. Very exciting. I'm guessing while you get some DIY projects done, you'll also get this book read and you'll have something to come back and share. Absolutely. (laughs) So until next week, when it's your time to share... Have a fabulous week. Take good care, everybody.